Romans chapter 15. We've spent a lot of time in the book of Romans. You're like, yeah, can we stop? Um, no, we're almost there. we got three more messages. And by the way, next week is Labor Day weekend. I expect that I'll be preaching to many of you while you're watching from the beach. Um, so I plan on just wearing a Hawaiian shirt up here. You guys be ready for that. I'm just telling you. It's Labor Day. I'm going to wear a Hawaiian shirt. It's going to be for some relaxation around here because I think it should be a rule that if it's 95 degrees outside, no one should be wearing a sport coat. That's just my thought. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to call that. Let that know we'll be wearing something a little bit more comfortable on that day. We've been spending a lot of time in this book. We've read and discussed the beauty of this book. In the first half, we saw how it clearly presents the message of salvation for all the world. Uh, We are declared righteous. We're declared to be righteous by our faith in Christ. We learned that early. We learned that we're being made in the image of Christ day by day through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we learned that we have a glorious future awaiting us for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, and we're awaiting that at his return, at Jesus' return. We've learned a lot. And then we took a, a shift when we got to Romans 12. And we saw how in Romans 12, in the second half of this letter, having given us what to believe about the great salvation we have, he now shows us how we are to live as recipients of this salvation in an unordinary way, that we're supposed to be unordinary. We're in essence called to love others more than ourselves and thus reflect to the world that Jesus is the Savior who gave his life for us. But now... You might be thinking, most of the time when we read letters like this, when we get to chapters 15 and 16, we start seeing like the conclusions. We start seeing the greeting sections and think, well, is this really important? I believe it is because in this today, in this letter, we're finally going to get a glimpse of the person behind the letter, the Apostle Paul. Finally today we get that. In today's passage, we get to see into Paul's heart as he shares with us, uh, with us a peak at his life's ambition. And I'm going to focus on that word here. We're talking about an unordinary ambition today. Because a person's ambition is what drives him or her to do what they do, right? You have the ambition for something. If you're starting, I know a friend who's starting a 5K or he's going to run a 5K. Actually, I take it back. His wife's making him run a 5K. And he says, look, I'm, I'm going to run it. I don't want to be the guy that walks it. So he started a couch to 5K app. Have you ever done that? You're like, what's a 5K? Okay, that's three miles. All right, so he says, I've gone from the couch to 5K. He'll walk a lot of laps, then he'll run about 10 seconds. And then he runs 20 seconds. And it builds up to the point where he's running the whole 5K. His ambition is to run the whole 5K. You understand what I'm saying? And that's going to drive him to get up in the morning and do those crazy things at a crazy heat. I think it's like 102 at 5 o'clock in the morning. But he does those things for that reason. Uh, A life coach and a contributor to Forbes, uh, his name is Ron Carushi, he stated that there are three basic uh, aspects of what he calls a healthy ambition. And I want to put those on the screen for you. There's performance ambition, and that's where we want to get to. So for my friend, he wants to finish a 5K running the whole time. I don't think he's concerned about his timing. I don't think he's, I think he's concerned about surviving. So he's doing these things in order to get to that finish line. Then there's growth ambition. So let's say he, wants, he runs this 5K and decides, I want to run another one, and I want to get better at it. That's growth ambition, how, he'll, how he will need to learn and grow. He may have to ex, uh, 
do some speed interval training and things like that. And finally, it's what's called achievement ambition. And achievement ambition is what we want in the form of reward. That may be, I have the ambition of retiring early, going to the beach. That's an achievement ambition. In today's passage, Paul gives us a clear look at his ambition. And let me tell you, it's a performance ambition. He wants to tell you today where he wants to go, what he wants to get to for his life and ministry. And in this ambition that I'm about to share with you, I believe that we as the people of Salem Baptist Church this morning, it should be our ambition as well. And with that, let's take a look at Romans 15, 14 through 24. It's going to be on the screen where Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So right away he says, you're killing it, guys. You're killing it. But look at verse 15. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Uh, a, a, a version I enjoy, the New Living Translation says, even so, I've been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need, or that, that all you need is this reminder. So we need reminders in our lives. Paul says, hey guys, you're killing it, but you need a reminder too. And he's going to give them the, what he wants to remind them of. In verse 15, he keeps going, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone's foundation." But as is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this opportunity now to take your word, open it, discuss it, and see what it teaches us about who you are. Father, I pray that if I say just my opinion, may that be forever forgotten in the ears of those who are listening. And I pray, Lord, that they would even forget that I preached this sermon, but they would remember the message from your word. They would be challenged by its challenge. And Lord, make us more like your son, Jesus, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. In this passage, Paul is explaining his ambition. And to many in Paul's day and to ours as well, it's got to be seen. I got to share with you. This is an unordinary ambition. Here's why. Paul is not seeking to grow his influence as a teacher or a shepherd. He's not looking for that. He's not interested in building a kingdom for himself. He's not interested in any of the, the common metrics or systems of measurement for measuring success. 
He's not looking at that at all. As a matter of fact, we're going to find later that Paul's ambition to preach the gospel to the Gentile people is what ultimately lands him in Roman imprisonment. We find this in the book of Acts when he stands before a crowd and says that God has called me to preach to the Gentiles. And the phrase at that Gentiles, that phrase Gentiles, at that word, the people wanted to kill him. So that the Roman soldiers in the area came to protect him and put him in prison. Paul was not put in prison for preaching the gospel. Paul was put in prison for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's what made him put here. And that's his ambition. And that's an unordinary ambition. If, you were to, if I were to ask you, what do you want to, if I was asking high school graduates, what do you want to do after you graduate? And you said to me, I want to do that which puts me in prison. I'm going to wonder something. Okay? Now, you, I was voted most likely to be in prison, but for totally different reasons. But if, if you looked at me and said, listen, I want my aim in life to do what it takes to get to prison, I've got questions. But that was Paul's unordinary ambition. It shuns any traditional or even conventional measurements of success. His ambition is not to be a bestseller or to be a popular TED Talk. That's not what he's about. Paul's goal here, his, he's concerned with, he's not concerned with any of that because his ambition is born out of a direct calling from God to proclaim the gospel of Christ to all, no matter what. We see this when Paul was in prison. He was visited by Jesus, and Jesus told him, you're going to be my witness to the Gentiles. And Paul's calling should be ours as well. Now, you're like, we're doing that with Gentiles. Hang on for a minute. Because in this passage, here's what we see. In this passage, we see that Paul's ambition is an unordinary ambition. So what is it? What makes it so unordinary? Well, the first thing I'm about to say isn't going to be that unordinary at all. This won't shock you. The work of the Christian is to proclaim the gospel of Christ to all men, women, and children. Now, if, if I was teaching in the school, I would hear a couple, well, duh. Of course. Listen, brothers and sisters, I don't think I need to expound on this at all. As a matter of fact, if this is new information, we're in a lot more trouble than I thought. If, if, I, if you saw that and you thought, wait, you're kidding me. That's terrifying. We know this is true. Of course our mission is to proclaim the excellencies of God through Jesus Christ to the world. This is the mission that Jesus left us to do while we await his return which should come at any moment. We know this. This includes all men, women, and children, regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. One of the things, that's what we're doing here today with family worship. We're not saying big church matters more than junior church. We're not saying that phrase. We're saying all of our families, we want you to hear this. This is important. We want us all to know this. Guys, we get that. We get it. But what I want to do is make a special note of the way Paul describes this gospel in this passage. In verse 16, he refers to it as the gospel of God. In verse 19, he refers to it as the gospel of Christ. Now, while it may be that Paul is just, just using two different phrases to mean the same thing, this is possible. It's possible that he wanted these, to be, these to be interchangeable. 
Could I suggest there may be another possible reason for calling it the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ? And here it is. First, it's the gospel of God because he is the author of it. Again, you might think, well, duh, of course. But hear me out. The gospel finds its origin in God. It's his gospel. It's his story to tell. And since it is his gospel, he gets to dictate how and to whom we proclaim it. We don't. We don't get to say, well, that's just not our role. That's just not our thing. Let a church down the street reach out. I hear this church is doing great. Let's let them do that. We'll focus on this. That's not what the gospel of God tells us. Because he's the author of it, because it's his story to tell, he gets to decide how we tell it and to whom we tell it. He gets to. But listen, it's also the gospel of Christ because he, Jesus, is its focus and emphasis. You see, this is how God has designed for the gospel to reclaim, to be proclaimed to all men, women, and children. Brothers and sisters, we're proclaiming a person. I want you to catch that. It's not a program which, if we follow it, it confers on us some kind of form of salvation. It's not a collection of self-help steps that lead us to being better. It's not even a set of guidelines or rules that make us good people. Because, you may know this, my feelings, there's no good people and bad people. There's just bad people and Jesus. It's not about, the gospel cannot be about, here's how to make your life better. Because it won't. You're like, wait a second, this is the worst gospel presentation I've ever heard. Listen to it. A lot of times we proclaim the gospel this way. If your life is stinky, Jesus will come and make it better and fix it. Listen, if you're in the midst of a divorce and you get saved, that's not going to make you a better husband or wife. Right there. Your wife's not going to go, thank you. Now now you're finally the... No, there's going to be a lot more work. The divorce still may happen. You might be in the midst of losing your job. You're like, I think I'll get saved and fix it. Nope, your boss is still upset. You're like, Rick, where's this going? Listen, the gospel is not about making a better you. The gospel is about rescuing a broken you. The gospel is about rescuing a lost you. And it's doing that through a person. We are proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. Or I like to say, we're proclaiming that he is who the Bible says he is, and he did what the Bible says he did. That he is God in flesh. And that he died for your sins and for the sins of the world was buried and rose again to show that that sacrifice was more than sufficient. That's the gospel we proclaim. Nothing else. Now here, why are you saying this, Rick? Because I think sometimes we've heard a gospel that's different. We may have heard a gospel incorrectly or an incorrect gospel. We've heard a, well, now that you're saved, do this. Live this way. Act this way. My wife will tell you, when I first came to know Christ, I sort of got into back, well, I, I grew up in a very, tr- I'm going to say the word traditional, but I'm going to say fundamentalist, but ungood, is ungood a word? It is now, ungood way of looking at things. I remember as soon as I came to know Christ, I had this, well, here's what I have to do, because this is what I was taught. I got to make sure I wear this. I got to make sure my hair's cut to this level. Don't make jokes now. 
I got to make sure I, I carry this translation. I got to make sure I go to church this many times. And if I ever miss a day, I got to have a good reason. Why were you not here? I was dead. I was dead. It's the only good reason. <laughs> okay. Okay. And it became this, I just grew, I went back into that mindset. And, and listen, I was hearing a gospel that was a program, not a person. Because when I read the gospels about who Jesus was, he didn't operate like that. He didn't operate like that. There's a book I'm reading right now. It's called What If Jesus Was Right? He said, if like, what, if, what if we took Jesus seriously? Because he calls us to do certain things. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Not about religious activity, religious exercise, and church attendance, but it's about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as yourself. Salem, what, what would it look like if we all took Jesus seriously? Because we're proclaiming him as who the Bible says he is and him doing what the Bible says he did. And that leads us to the second point of today's passage that I think for, for us here, we should spend the most time on today. And here it is. Since the work of the Christian is to proclaim the gospel of Christ to all men, women, and children, our ambition, therefore, is to reach the unreached people so that they hear the gospel rightly. Let me read for you again from Romans chapter 15. Now, I'm going to read it from the New Living today because I really like the way it puts it. Verse 20 says, Paul writes, My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard. Rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says those who have never been told about him will see and those who have never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I've been preaching in these places. But now I have finished my work in these regions and after all these long years of waiting, I'm eager to visit you. I'm planning to go to Spain and when I do, I will stop off in Rome and after I've enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. Right here in this passage, we see Paul's aim, his ambition, is to preach the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, in places where it had never been heard. Now, for Paul, this meant Spain. He says, I, I need to get to Spain. At this point in Paul's life, he had already preached the gospel in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. He's already done that. And now he's turning his attention to the western area, specifically Spain. And Spain was far from Paul's initial sending church in Antioch, and thus he was requesting some assistance so that he could make the journey so that this Roman church could be a part of fulfilling this ministry, this ambition that Paul has. So ultimately, Paul wants to proclaim the gospel to those who have not yet heard. He's not concerned with building a platform, a legacy, or a kingdom. He desires for the gospel of God, that gospel of Christ, to cross previously uncrossed social and geographical lines. Paul is taking that command of Jesus in Acts 1-8 very seriously, seeking to make sure that the gospel is spread to the ends of the earth. Now, this is my opinion. I prayed earlier that if it was just my opinion, you'd be forgotten, but will you indulge this opinion for a moment? It's my opinion that the culture of Salem Baptist Church must be defined by this kind of barrier-breaking ambition. We at Salem must be looking around for the unreached, the Spains of our day and time. 
The remains will take care of actual Spain. They, you got this? You got it. Okay, the whole country is yours. All right. We've got to figure out what our Spain is. Now, you might say, well, I know what our Spain is. It's everybody. Let me go further. That there should exist within our church a yearning, a desire to go to seemingly hard-to-reach people and places where Christ has either not been named or named in a manner unworthy of him. Rather than looking for success in terms of numerical growth or, or cutting-edge ministry, we, like Paul, should be eager to find ways to reach the currently unreached. We're all amen in that. But the question becomes, who? Who is this? Who could be the Spain of Salem? Who could be the people that Salem is called to reach who have not yet heard or heard rightly. In the recent survey that our church completed, an overwhelming majority of those who took the survey communicated that while we've done a lot in our church for international missions, we have, in essence, your words, overlooked the neighboring West Salem community. You said it. You've said it. And when Ira Towns came and shared with us the results of the survey, my mind immediately went to a conversation that I was a part of a little over 16 years ago. I was fresh on the pastoral team, 31-year-old, had hair. I'm not putting those two together of you became a pastor. I'm not doing that, but data. Um, and I was in a conversation with several ministry leaders, like, like people who were here at the time. I said, what are we going to do? Because here, my title when I first came on was Pastor of Outreach. You're like, well, you failed that one. Well, I know. You ready? Let's keep going. We were having a conversation, and several of us were meeting to discuss ways we can improve our evangelistic outreach within our immediate community. Because we knew then we are not defined by our neighbors. I mean, they're, like, they're not coming in. At that time, when my wife and I started coming to church at Salem, um, we were told, why are you going to Salem? If I may, there's just old pastors and missionaries at Salem. Why, why are you going? That was the phrase we were taught. And we were hearing this conversation. We were asking, what can we do? And when the notion of doing more in West Salem to reach the yet unreached was approached, there were a lot of great ideas presented on how to overcome that, that seeming barrier between our church and the community in which we reside. And there were great ideas given, but there was also this sense, this, this feeling of hopelessness that was really palpable in the room. And during this conversation, there's one phrase that was uttered that stood out to me, and I've never forgotten it. And here was the phrase. Some of them don't even want to be reached. I want you to hear that. Some of them don't even want to be reached. I wonder if that's the sentiment shared by many of us today. No, I, I mean, think about it this way. What's the use in reaching out if no one responds? I've heard it. What's the point of doing events like VBSs, Trunk or Treat, Journey to Bethlehem, Community Christmas Party, and a whole host of others we do for the community if those who come never enter the doors on a given Sunday? 
Why bother with this if it doesn't result in more people coming to church? I've heard that. I've heard people say, how did that outreach go? Well, here's what happened. Okay, great. How many of those did we see coming to the doors of that Sunday? Brothers and sisters, again, opinions, and you can ignore these. I pray that you would. What if our ambition is all wrong? What if our ambition is all wrong? This ambition, which could be described as more of an achievement ambition driven by measurable results, is easy to adopt. Don't get me wrong. Our ambition can so easily become or to be a, organ, a re- recognized and renowned church with huge numbers and dynamic services. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Hear this. Make sure this is the mental tattoo. And kids, if you want to share this with Pam so you know this is what you paid attention to, this is it. There's nothing wrong with having a church having an influence. There's nothing wrong with that. Such influence can lead to more and more opportunities to proclaim the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, which is wonderful. And we're thankful for those opportunities. And if these blessings happen to our church as a result of faithful gospel proclamation, then we should celebrate what God is doing through us for his glory. There's nothing wrong with it. But what if the ambition to have these blessings is the problem? And this is an ordinary ambition for churches to have. It's exceedingly easy for this to creep in, this ordinary ambition to creep into our church because it's easy to measure success by numbers, isn't it? It's easy to do that. It's difficult to measure success by the work of God in the lives of those around us. But what if our goal of getting them within our walls for a Sunday is wrong? Could there be another more unordinary ambition that we should be aiming for? And can I submit to you what I think that is? Our ambition in gospel proclamation to yet unreached people is to be outward moving rather than inward growing. Outward moving rather than inward growing. Now listen, don't be wrong. I want them to come and hear the gospel and grow and connect But this ambition is not about growing our influence or our church, but to give ourselves, our time, our energy, our money, to give and keep giving with no strings attached. Not with the ultimate goal that unreached people should join us, but that they may be joined to Christ in salvation. I want you to hear that again. Our goal, our ambition cannot be that they just join us. It has to be that they join Christ. This unordinary ambition turns ordinary ambition upside down. So, because I'm a teacher, I'm giving you a homework assignment. Like, really? Yeah, I am. And this assignment has a due date. This assignment is due throughout next week. And I'll give you two, but really next week. Either in your Sunday school class, your small group, or just within your immediate circle of family and friends, I would ask that you discuss with one another ways in which we as a church can engage in this type of outward-oriented outreach. Without the goal being bring them in the doors, but with the goal of joining them into Christ. It's not necessarily aimed at bringing them into the building on a Sunday service, but about taking the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, beyond our walls into a world of those who have yet to hear the gospel or hear the gospel 
rightly. And here's how I'd like to verify that you took this assignment seriously. As you meet, whether in your Sunday school or in your small groups or in your family, I want you to email me your ideas at this email address. You can take a picture of it. It's easy to catch me. That's the one I check. And we as pastors, I've already talked to some deacons, we as pastors, ministry leaders, and deacons are going to look at these ideas and discuss next steps. We're going to take it seriously. You're going to be heard. And can I say this one? There's no dumb ideas. I mean, I won't tell you that's dumb. But there's no, everything's on the table. Everything's on the table. I want you to hear it. Salem, it's time. It's time. We know our orders from our Lord Jesus to make disciples of all people. We've seen the ambition laid out for us through Paul's ambition. We know what we are to be doing. Let us now take this ambition as our own and proclaim the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, to those right outside our doors. You have your homework. I'll check on it this week. Will you pray with me? Father, I feel like nothing can be added to anything you've already said. God, you've called us to make disciples of all nations. You've called us to reach out to the ends of the earth. And I believe that Salem Baptist Church has done that. But in our our reaching to the ends of the earth, we may have overlooked those right outside of our door. And for whatever reason we've done that, I, I pray for forgiveness. If it was an accidental oversight, forgive us. If it was a purposeful oversight, Father, forgive us, but grant us repentance. But God, don't let us leave this building today not change in some way. Father, I pray that the reaction that we should have in our service from this would be to find ways in which we can reach those right outside of our doors. Father, if there's anything in our hearts that keeps us from that, if if we're just so stubborn that we don't want to do that, God, do what you have to do to break our hearts and show us the great need. Father, we love you. And I'm thinking back on that quote that was said that some people may not want to be reached. God, that was me. And I'm so thankful that men like Eric Richter reached out, even though I was difficult and difficult to deal with. And he showed me what Jesus was all about. God, please make our hearts the same that we would do the same as Mr. Richter did for me. God, we love you, and we love you, and we thank you, and we pray this all in the name that is above every name, the name that is worthy of our proclamation, the name of Jesus. Amen.